Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Vindra Hardware. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, she's a staff writer at SlashFilm.com and a frequent presence on SlashFilm Daily. Hui Chen Bui, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. HT, how are you doing today? Hey, everyone. I'm happy to be here, and I'm good. Thank you. Glad to have you back. And uh, what better time to have you back than today when we'll be discussing uh, a, a few things. But the thing that we're most looking forward to talking about is Crazy Rich Asians. So we're going to be yes. reviewing that uh, coming up shortly and following that up with a Slash Filmcast After Dark where we're going to dive into HBO's original series Succession, which is yeah. a show that all uh, three of us have been completely obsessed with. In the last you could call it uh, crazy rich uh, Caucasians. Yeah, <laughs> you could, could call it that. HT uh, won't be joining us for that. HT, you have not seen uh, Succession yet, right? No, I've heard good things, but I just could have not picked it up. Yeah, okay. yeah. In the twilight of the summer, when you know the show is already over and interest has has largely waned, we're like, hey, we got we got to get a review of this the show out there because I mean, I think Jeff, you and I both watched this entire thing within the span of like two weeks, right? Uh-huh. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. We devoured it. At least I did, and uh, I feel like I'm very glad I didn't watch this in HBO <laughs> real time. I'm glad I waited until. It was uh, bingeable because uh, it it was a show I wanted to binge. Indeed, indeed. Um, mm-hmm. So look forward to that in the after dark, right after our review of Crazy Rich Asians. But before that, uh, we have a few announcements and some emails we want to read. You can always email us at slashfilmcast at gmail dot com. Um, you can also find any episode of the show at slashfilmcast dot com, or at least the last uh, you know hundred or thirty episodes or so. Uh, and first of all, I want to address something that we've gotten tons of emails about. Emails, tweets, probably uh, something that is one of our most requested features, uh, which is timestamps in show notes. A lot of people tell us that um, when they listen to this episode, they uh, an episode of the Slash Filmcast, they often have not seen the film yet or they're going to watch the movie later and so they listen to the non-spoiler section and they want to find the spoiler section later on in time when they when they listen to the podcast again and uh I used to include show notes uh that were very detailed about when you could find our review and our segments and when things began and when things ended and when spoiler section began and I stopped doing that recently and there's a reason for that which is that our podcast host uh uses dynamic ad insertion and what that is what that means is basically uh they run ads on the podcast and sometimes uh they remove those ads and sometimes they insert new ones and sometimes the ads are of different lengths so basically any timestamps i put in there are very likely going to be inaccurate within the span of you know a few weeks uh, and I felt like it was better to not include timestamps at all rather than include timestamps that might be inaccurate. Uh, but I, I, I don't, I'm revisiting the wisdom of that uh, decision after all these emails that we've gotten. A lot of people have suggested putting in podcast chapters, but unfortunately our podcast host also does not allow podcast chapters. Like the, the way they distribute the file, it mm-hmm. does not allow for podcast chapters. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to try this out for the next few episodes. Uh, I'm going to try putting in an approximate time. I'm going to just put like, you know, with a little squiggly line and say like about 32 minutes in, Crazy Rich Asians review and so on. 
and uh, we'll see how that goes. And that time is going to change, and it's going to become inaccurate. And uh, if people write in and say, hey, I accidentally fast-forwarded to spoilers for the M. Night Shyamalan film Split by accident, um, then I'm going to stop doing that. But uh, if <laughs> but it should only be inaccurate by, you know, 45 seconds a minute mm-hmm. at, at most. I don't right? know, so Jeff. It, some it, of these ads can go on for like five minutes, you know? I don't know if you – I'm sure they're very, very short and palatable for everyone. <laughs> so the ads might – you know, the, the timestamps might be off by a few minutes and hopefully it's like accurate enough that – People can find their place. Um, when we have multiple reviews, like today we're going to do Crazy Rich Asians and Succession like as multiple reviews, I'm going to try to put in like a healthy uh, music or trailer cue in between them. So you can like if you're fast forwarding, you can kind of listen for that. Uh, but, girl from Ipanema action. Yeah, some, something like that. Uh, that's all, that's all I can do, though. <laughs> you know, usually it's going to be more relevant to uh, what is being reviewed, Jeff. But, oh, oh, I just yeah. thought I would just uh... – you know, he's the girl from Ipanema every time. Mm. Just, uh, you know, yeah, people yeah, yeah. know. Just listen that's to just what's running Ipanema. through Jeff's mind. Yeah, that's like <laughs> Jeff's head all, at all times. Is that yeah, like. only when Dave's talking. That's what I actually oh, hear. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what we're going to do for show notes. I'm going to put approximate times in there, and uh, hopefully it's going to work for people. Um, and if it doesn't and people complain, then they're just going to go away, and we're going to go to what it is right now, which is no timestamps whatsoever. So... Uh, thanks to everyone for writing in and sharing your feedback at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And speaking of slashfilmcast at gmail.com, I wanted to read this email from Ryan C., who writes into slashfilmcast at gmail.com from Knoxville, Tennessee. Ryan writes in, quote, just real quick, I too saw The Meg, hoping for Piranha 3D type stupidity, and I was surprised to find that the film took itself so seriously for so long. Overall, I had fun with the film, but when it ended, I really wanted that over-the-top, hard R-rated shark movie with blood and guts. But then I went to the bathroom. When I went to the (laughs) bathroom, and this is going to sound real weird, so bear with me for a second. There were three sets of little boys with their dads, and they were all talking about how much they enjoyed the film. The dad next to me was asking his son what his favorite part was, and he responded, when he found out there was a second shark. Spoilers for that. Oh, yeah. So then I thought... You know, if this had been rated R, these kids wouldn't have been able to go in and enjoy the film with their dads. I remember fondly being a little kid and standing in line for Independence Day and just the anticipation. And then after the film, just the feeling of having every single one of my expectations met with it. The Meg is no ID4, but you get the comparison. So in closing, I thought the film was fun. I'm glad it was watered down. And I think that overall helped contribute to its large opening. Love the show. End quote. That email comes from Ryan. Writing Think in about, about the our... children. The <laughs> children have to enjoy their shark movies. Their yeah. giant shark movies, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, uh, Ryan's obviously responding to our review of The Meg last week. Uh, and what, what do you think, guys? I mean, we had expressed disappointment that it wasn't over-the-top bloody and trashy. Um, but maybe uh, The Meg is going to be a gateway <laughs> drug for you know the youngins of today to get hooked on, on cinema. What do you think? You guys that's, think that's uh, always a thing. Um, but yeah, nothing is preventing a very irresponsible parent from just letting their child watch a hyper violent uh, <laughs> version of the Meg. I saw RoboCop when I was like eight. Yeah, and I turned out yeah. right. Davinder turned out completely fine with no flaws whatsoever. Uh, so. uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, my biggest complaint with this email is that he holds up ID Four as some sort of good movie, which <laughs> it is not. Jeff, oh, Jeff. Uh, oh, ID Four was a formative experience for many yeah. people in their youth, I, I agree including myself. Movie, yeah. Including myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. 
I, I feel like it's it's all nostalgia, all, uh, nostalgia holding up that movie, but uh, you know, it's a thing. It's a force of nature. Uh, I also want to point out, by the way, that the hashtag Save Dave Wave is out in full force. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, for David Chen, me, to win the summer movie wager, the Meg needs to unseat Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again as number 10 at the box office this summer. Uh, and unfortunately, I got a prediction from a uh, Scott Mendelson uh, who <laughs> writes uh, for Forbes Ticket Booth uh, column, which is a, a great column about the box office. He does not think the Meg is going to overtake Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Did, did he thinks, think uh, Skyscraper would do super well, too? Uh, I, I mean, he may have written about that. but, yeah. um, but uh, <laughs> He may have ghostwritten Dave's list. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the, uh, the Meg is, is probably going to top out at $116 million. And uh, Mamma Mia, here we go again, is probably going to make $120 uh, yeah. as of Labor Day, which is an excruciating way to lose the summer movie wager. I just want you guys to know. Uh, it's going to come down to $5 million, and literally yeah. one point is how much <laughs> I'm going to lose by. Sounds like the kids love their feel-good musicals more than they love their watered-down shark movies. Yeah, so it's, I think that's, that's, that's you know, maybe the kids will be all right, uh, but Dave, I'm not feeling good about Dave, we need you to shout it. your best Mamma Mia uh, once this is done, just like <laughs> in Rage, you know, like Khan or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do a Mamma Mia yeah. screaming up into the sky for sure. Uh, okay. So you can always write into us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. And finally, uh, one other thing I wanted to address before we get going today, which is, uh, you know, I've been doing this podcast for over 10 years. This podcast has survived many living situations, many roommates, uh, many relationships, many friendships, many jobs. Um, it's been with me through many, many life phases, and uh, I just wanted to disclose the newest life phase that I'm a part of, which is that I recently took a job at Amazon Prime Video. Uh, and so I just think it's important for everyone to know that. Like a few weeks ago, I started working for Prime Video. Uh, and what that means for the podcast is is basically that I'm just not going to talk about anything related to Amazon Prime Video. You guys can talk about it, but uh, I will not because it's part of the company that I work for. So wanted to, to throw that out there, make sure people understood that. And it's going to be very relevant for today because, Devendra, <laughs> you've been watching something from Amazon Prime Video, right? I have. I've been watching the new Jack Ryan show. Um, which is very good, and I'm very sad uh, we can't talk about it together, Dave. But congrats <laughs> on your job. Thank and you. And I do also want to say, like, I guess congrats to Amazon for finally having, <laughs> or at least for resurrecting Jack Ryan in a way that's pretty fantastic. I um, you are going to say congrats yeah. to Amazon for hiring Dave Chen. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> also a completely valid way to congratulate Amazon. I Jeff. would more thank Amazon for uh, getting Jack Ryan right, because we know how hard that is. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think those two things are equally congratulatory worthy, but whatever. Yes. Okay. What are your thoughts on the on the se- uh, series? Yeah, I didn't have uh, much faith in this just because I'm not a uh, you know I've I've seen all the Jack Ryan movies. Uh, I don't have any particular attachment to the character. He's always struck me as like the analyst who just gets in way above his head, and that's like every movie, right? Um, but this like this show is just so well written. It is sort of like when Homeland was really smart. Uh, so it's a really smart show about like a uh, counterterrorism, um, and also the cast is fantastic. Like John Krasinski is kind of the perfect Jack Ryan. He is the perfect like guy you could believe would be behind a desk most of his life, but also 
as he's kind of proven over the past couple of years with his uh, movie choices, especially like the quiet place and that military one he did. Uh, yeah, he's a decent action star now too. And this role kind of has him in both uh, kind of doing both things. You know, he's a guy behind desk, but he's also had some actual action experience. Um, and I think it's uh it's just a really smart show. Uh, it's, it's about, um, him tracking a supposed terrorist in the Middle East that nobody believes, of course, nobody believes him. This guy actually exists. And then something big happens. And then all of a sudden everybody has to listen to everything Jack Ryan says. Um, but I think it does a good job of portraying like the actual backstory of who this person, yeah, who the bad guy is and kind of what leads him to do what he's doing. And also, um, you know, on the, on the U S side, like Jack Ryan, is an interesting character. He's kind of a funny guy. His boss, who inevitably hates him and is like the police chief who just shouts, Jack Ryan, get into my office, is played by Wendell Pierce. And I love Wendell Pierce. He gets to be like an action guy in this show. It's actually, I've never, I wouldn't have imagined that, especially after like Treme, where he's just like lounging around, right? With his, uh, what was it? He was he a saxophone player. Um, he was just like lounging around, like being, you know, as, uh, as you know, I guess lazy as a character as he can be like he just wants to relax this guy he's a hard ass boss uh, but he will get in the action he will strap on an assault rifle and like you know start defending his territory if he needs to uh, the show it just has a lot going for it I think it's a very smart take on the spy and like counterintelligence genre uh, good action good writing good characters it's really all I ask for and it also looks very good too I think a lot of TV shows just tend to look cheap these days especially like action oriented ones uh this you know this show looks like a decently budgeted hollywood thriller and you can really tell that from some of the action set pieces too so all in all very good and if you're interested in the jack ryan character i think you'll be very happy with what they're doing here cool uh well that's tom clancy's jack ryan and it is on prime video on august 31st i believe is when you can see it there uh davinder what else have you been watching uh, also, I've been watching uh, Castle Rock on Hulu, and uh, you know this is a show that's like vaguely it's set in the Stephen King universe, but it's not really about any specific Stephen King stories. It's sort of like what uh, they did with the Fargo show, um, but there there are certainly Stephen King themes and references. Like uh, the Shawshank Jail is a big part here. Uh, one character you know um, names himself after the Shining folks, uh, last name Torrance, right? Uh, there are a lot of like nice little nods here, and I think it really gets the mood and vibe of uh, Stephen King's work really, uh, really well. Also, a strong cast here as well. Uh, it stars Andre Holland as a guy who's coming back to Castle Rock. He kind of grew up there. Something mysterious happened in his past that may or may not be like supernaturally related. Uh, he gets called back there because somebody finds a prisoner, just kind of like trapped in Shawshank, and nobody knows how he got there. And that's a I don't even know if they give him a name. He's just he's a character played by Bill Skarsgård. So he's back in the Stephen King universe. He's the guy who played, you know, It the Clown. Uh, but it's just him. I believe being Pennywise was the name. Pennywise. Yeah. 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 Pennywise and It. Sorry. Uh, but he is here being creepy face once again in a Stephen <laughs> King property. And I think like you could, you could just cast him in everything, uh, you know, uh, as like a Stephen King story. I could see him playing Christine the talking car or the, uh, the killer car at some point, he's just doing really good here. Uh, the show itself, I think has a lot of great, uh, you know, production values are great. I think it's like decently creepy. It is one of those streaming shows. I feel like doesn't have enough momentum all the time. So it sometimes feels like it takes a while to get where it's going, but in general, I like where it's going. So I'll keep watching. 
Cool. That's Castle Rock, and it's streaming right now on Hulu. Yeah. Uh, and that's what Davinder's been watching this week. It's a uh, is it is it like a good horror show? Davinder is it like actually horror, or is it? Yeah. Is it, yeah. It's like it's horror in the way that like a lot of Stephen King stories are. Like it's definitely creepy. There are definitely jump scares. There are, there are things. There's like a greater mythology that will kind of creep you out. I don't think it's much as a horror show as something like uh, Channel Zero is, which I you know is like fantastic horror. Uh, this is just like a nice creepy, uh, you know, weekly mystery series for Stephen King fans, basically. Before we get to our review of Crazy Rich Asians, I want to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to new subscribers, Jeffrey Engelstein, Jordan Cohen. Hey, Jeff hey, Engelstein. Jeffrey Engelstein. He's, yeah. he's awesome. He's a, a, a very notable board game designer and a, a friend of mine. He's uh, awesome that he's donating. Awesome. Jordan Cohen, Ryan Cashmere, Greg Schatzman, uh, Dan Kramer, and Brandon Rhodes. Thank you so much for your regular contributions uh, at the rate of $2 per month. We also want to thank all the people who made uh, regular donations. David Mason, Martin Wegner, Ben Sandy, Priscilla Garcia – uh, who canceled MoviePass and said, hey, this is a better use of the $10 that I'm donating. Wow. Um, William Kang and Kevin in Vermont, who wrote in the following, uh, I wanted to donate in support of Dave's generous Crazy Rich Asians screening. I admire the perspectives and convictions all of you bring to the show. Tons of respect to you uh, and your wife, Dave, for the time, effort, and money put into hosting uh, the screening. I'll be seeing Crazy Rich Asians uh, but does it count if I use my membership in an exclusive subscription service from a particular national movie chain, question mark? The answer to your question, Kevin, is yes. Um, but uh, thanks so much for your contributions, uh, all of you. Uh, and uh, Kevin, really appreciate uh, giving us a shout-out. What we did, uh, of course, and I'm going to talk about it momentarily, is my wife and I hosted a screening of Crazy Rich Asians in the Seattle area uh, to give the movie a big opening weekend, uh, to, or to try our best to give it a big opening weekend. Uh, and we'll talk in a moment about whether we succeeded or not. Uh, but- I love the idea of someone donating to us in lieu of movie pass. And I think we should adopt the same <laughs> philosophy where if they try to cancel their donation, we just don't let them. That yeah. great? We should just, <laughs> it seems to be working great. You can never like resubscribe. Yeah. yeah. I'll think about that, Jeff. Um, but anyway, uh, you can always donate to this podcast by going to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash, and then the word filmcast. Uh, you can also go to SlashFilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Thanks again. Let's get to our review of Crazy Rich Asians. Right. We've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore. Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, it changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into for a step. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. I want the money. 1.2 million. That's what I want. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. That's what I Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> Mom, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some like unrefined banana. No, no, no. Uh, 
Those are for your fingers. Yellow on the outside, or white on the inside. That was from the trailer for Crazy Rich Asians, uh, the new, new film by director John Chu that's out in theaters right now, based on the popular series of novels uh, by writer Kevin Kwan. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. This contemporary romantic comedy based on a global bestseller follows native New Yorker Rachel Chu to Singapore to meet her boyfriend's family. Now, before I get into this review, guys, uh, I wanted to just talk briefly about uh, the screening that I held uh, for Crazy Rich Asians at Regal Meridian in downtown Seattle. Uh, When my wife and I decided to host the screening, uh, we thought it'd be like a pretty small thing. We would announce it on the podcast and like that would basically be the end of it. Um, And so on Thursday night, like on Tuesday night, we published the podcast announcing uh, the screening. And then on Thursday night uh, that week, I was actually photographing a wedding. I was shooting a wedding and I started getting like all these um, messages because uh, this screening had been written about in the Seattle Times uh, during the week. And then I started getting messages from local news anchors saying like, hey, we'd love to have you on uh, to talk about the screening and why you're doing it. Um, and, uh, I think that it actually spread to like CBS this morning. I was on CBS this morning, this morning, apparently. Uh, so I just want to, first of all, say thank you to all the journalists who covered this. Uh, they covered it, you know, not just to, uh, elevate David Chen's profile, which I know we all think is a worthy cause, uh, (laughs) but they covered it because, uh, I think, you know, they, they wanted to, uh, give a shout out to this movement, this hashtag gold open movement of uh, Asian Americans really investing in this movie, buying out theaters and giving it uh, a, a massive opening for a romantic comedy. It made uh, $35 million over the opening five days that it was out in theaters. Um, it's one of the biggest romantic comedies since I think it was like um, – Think Like a Man is the last romantic comedy that made uh, as much money. That was in 2012. I don't even know uh, what that movie is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Think Like a Man, uh, directed by Tim Story uh, in 2012, is the last PG-13 uh, romantic comedy that did uh, nearly as well as Crazy Rich Asians. So uh, really happy that uh, the movie performed uh, admirably in its opening weekend at the box office. I'm, gonna, I'm interested to see uh, what the drop is going to be like. Uh, because <laughs> literally hundreds of people did buy out theaters. Uh, <laughs> so I'm wondering like how much that, that juiced the rankings. But I do think that uh, the movie is also very enjoyable. And uh, my wife, a- as we're recording this, my wife is actually seeing the film uh, a second time right now. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, <laughs> which is uh, I wanted to say thank you to all the people who came to the screening. A lot of very, very nice Slash Homecast listeners uh, who came to the screening and said hi and had been listening for many years. Um, really, really appreciate uh, everything that you guys did to come out, spread the word of the screening. It was so nice to meet you guys there. Uh, and I think everyone came to the screening. They laughed, had a great time. Um, so really appreciate the presence of, uh, of all the Slash Homecast listeners and, and anyone else who came. Let's get to our review of the film. So, HT, you write for SlashFilm.com. You've written several pieces 
uh, about Crazy Rich Asians uh, for SlashFilm.com. Crazy Rich Asians doesn't try to break stereotypes, and that's good. Uh, What Crazy Rich Asians gets right about Asian American identity. I want to talk to you about those pieces, and we'll link to them in the show notes. But before we get to them, I kind of want to hear overall, what were your thoughts on this film? I really enjoyed Crazy Rich Asians on multiple levels, actually, as a as an Asian American and as a rom-com lover. I have been anticipating this film uh, since it was announced, and I was kind of nervously anticipating it because I had read the book and uh, I hadn't quite enjoyed the book as much as I thought I would, but I basically anticipated the film being much better version of that because it seemed like it was made for the cinema rather than just being kind of a list of designer uh, clothes that were just on a a page. So, and I was right. I really enjoyed that experience. I thought um, John Chu did a really great job of creating this flamboyant, uh, fun, gaudy uh, take on this sort of elite Singaporean class while anchoring it in this real emotional core uh, of that's um, Rachel, that's Constance Wu's uh, Rachel. And um, it's, it was such a fun sort of homage too to like a bunch of rom-com tropes that I really enjoy uh, as well as just kind of a, a surprisingly sincere um, portrayal of Asian American identity as well as kind of the diaspora between uh, mainland Asians and Asian Americans. Very cool. Um, glad to hear you liked it. The, the person whose opinion I'm most interested in is Jeff Kanata. <laughs> Jeff Kanata what did you think of Crazy Rich Asians I thought it needed more white people (laughs) (laughs) to really center the story around it right? yeah Yeah. Uh, I'm kidding of course Um, I found it delightful Uh, I I really did and it is one of those very rare movies and I think even more rare in this genre the rom-com genre where I really believe the third act is better than the first act. Mm. That almost never happens. It almost never happens, especially in these kinds of movies. In these kinds of movies, it's almost always way more fun to get the setup where all the funny stuff happens and you get our, our you know, the premise is really established in the first act and you get all the, the reason that the movie is made is the first act. It's like all these wacky characters and all this crazy, this crazy question of how it's going to work out. And usually the third act is the weakest part of a rom-com because it's kind of just going through the motions of getting the people together and paying things off and trying to be all plotty plotty. And you kind of you tend to lose all the fun that you had. And it's uh, it usually like slides into home rather than hitting a home run, you know. Or that's a bad analogy. Sliding into home is very exciting. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Slides uh, into home, but is tagged out before they get there. Huh? Right. It's a, a coasting into the finish. There's some sort of sports analogy here that I'm failing on. Anyway, um, you understand what I'm saying. I find this movie to be better in the third act. I, th- I thought the third act was was even better than the first act. I thought the fr- it, it felt to me a little slow to get going. It's really trying to juggle a lot of characters and introduce them all very, very fast. And uh, I, 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 I had a hard time sort of finding my footing in the first 20 minutes or so. Just felt like it was a little rushed and clunky and maybe there's a longer edit of this movie. It's already a fairly long rom-com, but... It really finds its way in the second and third acts, and the third act is delightful. 
It's fun. It's it made me cry. Uh, it is everything you want out of a movie like this. Sweet performances with very charming characters, very charming actors. I think that um, Michelle Yeoh is spectacular in this movie. Like the things that she does are so subtle and so beautiful and so um, effective. Uh, I, I found it to be much funnier in the second half than it is in the first half. The, the movie sort of found its humor there, especially when Ken Jong shows up. Um, I, I My complaints with the movie – are that I sort of inherently find the fetishization of wealth to be a little hard to swallow. Uh, and this movie balances that a little bit, but for the most part, it really is like, isn't it great to be filthy rich, you know? And, <laughs> and there's, that's a trope in romantic comedies as well, where, you know, like you know, Prince Charming and you find out that he's wealthy and all these, you know, pretty women does that and all kinds of I, stuff. I think the movie is commenting on many things, but I don't think it has that much to say about insane wealth and uh, income inequality or anything like that. I, I yeah. think the insane wealth becomes more of an entry point rather than an actual sort of subject of the film it's yeah. just uh, an easier access point for general audiences because that's something we're used to seeing in rom-coms and something we're not used to seeing with uh asians specifically mm-hmm. yeah i just you know i don't know where i am in the world these days it's just like eh, you know i have a hard time just having a lot of uh easy breezy fun with how great it is to be filthy rich <laughs> but mm. Uh, you know, and this movie sort of revels in that a little bit, and uh, that's it's fine. There's some fun with it, but you know, it, it is a little fetishized, I think. Um, but overall, just a a delightful experience. Uh, a movie that I sadly had to see by myself. I want to return and see it again in the theater with my wife because I think she'll love it, especially some of the wedding scenes. They're just really beautiful and well shot. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I really was delighted by this movie, and I think it is a top-tier romantic comedy full of great performances from charming actors. All right, Devinder Hardwar, take us through it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love this movie. Uh, add that to my soundboard, I guess. Uh, you know, I was I was expecting to like it. I was not expecting for this movie to also be a really uh, almost like subversive and deep take on like the immigrant experience. Right. Like being somebody from a culture and then going back to that culture. And it's the whole idea of like not quite fitting in anywhere. Right. It's like you're American, but you're you're othered a little but then you go back to some place where you should feel at home and you're not because you're also American. You're not of them. So I think it really, you know, balances that really well. Like as the, uh, it, it's kind of an important thing too. Like that's the whole, um, conflict with Michelle Leo's character is that Rachel, you know, just can never be like them. Like, because she, you know, she's just has a completely different ideal. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, I think this is, you know, it's a much deeper movie than I think I initially expected. There's a lot of stuff in the third act that's really interesting as well. Um, Even down to the use of like a certain song that just feels like it's shattering certain, you know, certain ideas and certain certain things you'd say. Um, It's a gorgeous looking movie. and I'm glad to see that John Chu, somebody who we followed since uh, Step Up to the Streets. Mm. Okay, remember that? 
uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about we actually we had him on the show at one point, I believe, and we chatted about some stuff. Uh, I'm very happy to see that he landed somewhere, you know, with a property that kind of is worth his talents to. Like he did a couple other things recently or right? he did the gi joe sequel which was not very good and uh the gem movie i haven't seen that but i haven't heard many good things this movie just feels like it really fits into his style um you know it's it's elaborate and it's there's some like beautiful flourishes especially towards the wedding and uh, towards like the bachelor and bachelorette parties uh you know there's there's so much flair to this movie and i think that all really helps but yeah ultimately it's very funny uh it's very moving it's very affecting and, you know, you kind of know where a rom-com will go, but I was really satisfied with where, with how it all kind of ended up, right? Like, it feels like uh, it's it's very smart in a certain way. It's very character-based, and it doesn't feel just like, you know, like the guy will chase after the girl and they'll all live happily ever after. There's a lot more going on there. I have a I have some complaints with, like, one specific subplot. Yeah. That, I think I know exactly uh, what you're talking about, yeah, Devendra. It sticks yeah. out like a sore thumb. Yeah. It sticks yeah. out a lot. <laughs> the movie's way too long already with it. We'll talk more about that in spoilers. Um, but, yeah, overall, very happy with this movie. I hope we see more things like this. I hope the, like, you know, strong opening shows that, you know, let's not be afraid to tell movies, um, you know, about non-white characters, you know, in general. Uh, I saw Justin Lin uh, tweeting last night. Somebody asked him, like, so will we see, like, a Better Luck Tomorrow sequel after this? And, like, even just him hinting at something like that is kind of amazing to me. So I hope this leads to many more great things. Uh, agree completely um, with hopefully this leads to more great things. Jeff, I also agree with your point that the fetishization of wealth, it's like a weird time uh, for that to be happening. But I also agree mm-hmm. with HT that, like, it's largely... Yeah window dressing you know in this movie uh, the, the movie i don't think has anything really particularly interesting to say about wealth um, well it does feel culturally appropriate yeah to you right yeah now. it, does, it feels like, true you know it doesn't feel yeah. like uh, it feels authentic it doesn't feel uh, there's a new yeah. booming middle class uh, all throughout asia and also like a like a, a lot more newly rich people so there's this idea of like wealth and money being thrown around um my only exposure to like going to asia is when i go to taiwan but it's kind of crazy um it is kind of crazy like the luxury department stores uh you know i usually stay in like a shopping district and literally every corner of that district there will be a giant mall with all the luxury retailers and everybody will be fighting to buy the same thing uh it's the same store like you know a quarter of a mile away from each other uh for several miles it's insane so there there's a certain like wealth status thing that's definitely going on as well yeah there's a there's a notable moment where constance Wu goes and meets a friend uh in in singapore and they live in a place that i would think it, oh yeah it, it denotes insane wealth and those <laughs> people are like you know the wealthy people it's like <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this movie. Uh, this movie means a lot to me, guys. Uh, I think I um, how do I how do I put this? I, I have a lot to say about it, and I'll, I'll try to divide it into to non-spoiler and spoiler. So, in terms of non-spoilers, I'll say that the one thing that this movie does that very few movies I've seen in my entire life have done is recognize that there is a difference between the Asian American and the Asian experience. Yep. And uh, it is so refreshing uh, that that perspective is actually recognized. Because uh, I will say, as an Asian American, and HD, I, I speak for myself, you know, like, um, 
this what I'm about to describe may not uh, comport with your ex- lived reality, uh, but for me as an Asian American. Uh, it, it, being Asian American is, is cool in many ways. Like, there's many aspects of our culture that I love and that I I enjoy experiencing. M- many of which are actually on display in the movie. You know, like uh, there's a lot of like uh, uh, shots of like food porn, for instance, and mahjong and other other sort of cultural totems of of, uh, of Asians that like you see throughout the film. Um, but it can also be, in my opinion, an extremely um, lonely and isolating experience because there's not that many Asian Americans in the country. Um, we're only, I think, around three percent of the world's population, and uh, it, it, it's you know so often in popular culture, Asian Americans are just lumped in with Asians. It's just like you know, oh, Asians, Asian Americans, it's all the same thing, um, but. Our experiences are so vastly different, and one of the ways they're vastly different is is like the the values is that we're instilled is this kind of um, I would say like if you're first generation this this uh, unwieldy mix of like what has come before and what is here in America. Yeah, uh, you know, like I think you saw this also in the Big Sick, right, uh, with uh, Kumal Nanjiani's character and. And him questioning, like, why, why, why his parents brought him here if all they want is for him to follow the old ways, right? And then what you end up uh, living is some amalgamation of the old and the new ways, right? Some respect for your elders and filial piety and all that, but also a co- combined with uh, American ideas of individualism and pursuing your dreams. And, like, these things often don't mix well together, and they often uh, create a lot of tension both within a person and in their family. Uh, and this is one of the only movies I've seen in my entire life that has really, truly grappled with that in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just means a lot to, to me, you know, personally, to, to see that on screen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Dave, like among the few movies that have done this are like the Harold and Kumar movies. That's what we've had, you know? Yeah. It's kind it's, of crazy. It's true. Um, and I mean, I, I, like even this movie, I would say, does it much more explicitly than the Harold and Kumar movies. Um, I think uh-huh. that... Uh, uh, the, that's arguably one of the the downsides of this movie is like there there are many moments in the movie where uh, like Michelle Yeoh you know there's a moment when Henry Golding character uh, Henry Golding says like you know uh, the first girl I brought home was like a a Chinese professor and then Michelle Yeoh says Chinese American uh, and. And then I'm like, I, when, when I'm watching that, I think to myself, "Ooh, I'm uh, like, I know what she's talking about, but I'm worried that the audience won't understand like the distinction." And then Michelle Yeoh will then go on to explain exactly what the distinction is. And then I'm like, "Oh, okay, maybe that's a little like yeah. too much. Uh, that might be a, a little clunky." Where um, it doesn't explain anything at all. Too like it. It, it does. Well, there's a whole thing like right in the last act. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's not it, explained. I, I, overall, I yeah. thought the movie did a great job of kind of balancing um, what. Uh, like explaining too much and not explaining anything at all. Like it, it was actually very important to John Chu. I've read in in interviews like to not to not make it seem like you know Pandora or something like that, where you need to like explain <laughs> the rules of this place. Like this is a place that actually exists in real life, and the people who live there and who who have lived there their whole lives wouldn't be talking about like all the customs here. Like it was some exotic thing for them. It's just their lives, you know. 
Um, yeah. And so I did. I think a, it, yeah. it gives you a really layered performance too. Like whether you're Asian American or not, if you are Asian American or Asian, then you pick up on a few more things, and it's kind of like little gold nuggets that you find as you watch the film. Yeah, uh, completely. And, and actually, I th- it, it, to me, it felt like John Chu, uh, who directed this movie, like was trying to cram as many cultural references into this movie as possible like like there's like all these like gratuitous food porn shots that i'm and like mahjong and all these other and dumplings right and it felt like it it almost felt to me and i i don't i don't haven't spoken with him about this specific thing but it almost felt to me like he knew that this was the first time in 25 years that a hollywood movie set in modern times had an all asian and asian american cast and it could be another 25 years before we see right. another one of those, right? right? And you so he's like, shot. if I'm going to yeah. represent my culture, like if this film is going to be the vehicle through which my culture is represented, I'm going to put in as much as possible that is awesome about my culture into this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not like those things don't exist, too. Like those are normal everyday things. Yeah, 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 totally. You know? yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I want to say something yeah. about that, too, because yeah, please. I think this is a lesson that um, – I have learned many, many times, I have heard many, many times, and it seems to be proven true over and over and over again, that the more specific you get, the more general it is, you know? Mm. And and I, I know that one of the reasons I really want to take my wife back to see this is because the, you talk about the food porn, there, very much the relationship that we get between Nick Young and Rachel Wu is like built around a shared love of eating. You know, we see that in the very first moment they're together. It's like, I love eating. Yeah, me too. Let's see. How, how many of these are we going to have? You know, and they're like in this diner in New York. It has nothing to do with – and I – like that – just that alone – is something that my wife and I bonded over when we first met. Like we both love eating. And so there's this very specific thing that resonates for you culturally. But I think also because it's so specific, it works generally because you go, yeah, yeah, we love eating too. And we love, you know, exotic foods and fun things. So these things, you don't have to pander to an audience. You can present truths. And just because I don't have the exact experience of eating dumplings, uh, for example, I relate it to my own shared love of eating with my wife, the things that we like, you know, the things yeah, we've had. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot to that, you know. Uh, another movie that comes to mind when you say that, Jeff, is like My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Right. Uh, a lot of people saw their own family in um, in that that crazy, wacky family that was on screen for that movie. Uh, so uh, totally agree with that. Like the more specific you make it, the more – in some ways the more relatable it is. But at the same time, there's also things that are really distinctive to uh, Chinese culture in this film, speci- specifically around family dynamics that I thought were really well depicted. I took – you know, I, my parents came to see the screening with me. And uh, they really loved the movie and um, found it very meaningful and, and recognized a lot in it. Because the fact of the matter is, um, you know, I could say Asian, but more specifically Chinese families express their loves to their kids in different ways than American families do. And I think this movie does a great job of illustrating how um, terrifying but also how admirable that can be. Um, mm-hmm. So – so many things to like about the movie, and Angie Han uh, really summed this up well on Twitter when she said that there was one point in Crazy Rich Asians when I thought, I wonder what Asian audiences will think of X, and I wonder what mainstream American audiences will think of X, and then I realized it doesn't really matter because for once, the target audience is me. And uh, I really felt that. You know, it's, it's so 
meaningful to be able to see your perspective. Like someone who, who, who it feels like the filmmakers understand who you are, what you've been through. Uh, it's just extremely meaningful uh, when you're able to see that on screen. And mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of romantic comedies. You know, like it's it, you look at my top 10 movies of all top 30 movies of all time. Um, and I don't think there's a single romantic comedy in there. Uh, but the fact that John Chu is able to achieve, you know, all the stuff that I just described within the confines of romantic comedy. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed this movie a lot and found it very moving and it resonated with me very deeply. So uh, that's all I have to say about this movie. Pre-spoilers. Sorry, thank you for letting me go on like that, guys. I appreciate it. Um, is there anything else uh, we want to say before we get to spoilers? Anything else? We, any, uh, anything else we want to call out? I just want to say, like, the cast as a whole is surprisingly strong, too. Like, I didn't... This is a movie where, like, even minor characters, you just kind of love for specific things. Like, I think Aquafina does great work here, uh, which, like, her just, like, sort of persona, she is the, you know, comedy bomb we need in certain moments. Uh, I know a lot of her scenes, I think, were, you know, semi-improvised as well. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um, well, what's, what's really refreshing yeah. about this movie mm-hmm. is that there are, like, extremely wacky characters, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, the, the character that Aquafina plays or um, uh, the character that Ronnie Chang plays. You know what I mean? These, these are characters that, like, uh, you would see as a, as a side, like, the side only Asian character in another movie, right? Yes. But yes. I love that in this movie, you get to see, like, uh, quote-unquote, all different kinds of Asians. You know, like, you get to see, like, <laughs> super goofy... entire goof- spectrum. Yeah, yeah, you get to see, like, super yeah. goofy characters and super serious characters. Yeah. Jim, uh, like, Jimmy O. Yang in this movie feels like almost like the stereotype you'd see of a lot of other, you know, Asian characters, like at times. And also like almost a riff on like what he does in Silicon Valley as well. Just like more of like a bro, a rich, crazy bro. There's so much stuff. Going He's like on the here. opposite extreme of, of the yeah. character he is on Silicon yeah. Valley. And that's what I love about it. Like I thought his character was hilarious, but yeah, for, for once, I think we're not depending on like one character to kind of represent Asians in a movie. You know what I mean? Uh, although in some ways, like uh, many people have said, like uh, many people have pinned a lot of hopes on this movie to represent uh, the Asian continent, all 4.4 billion yeah. people of it. Um, but it's just refreshing to see a movie where like there's more than one Asian character, and you don't need to feel like oh that one person somehow represents you know, Asians or Asian Americans to the wider world. Um, yes. That's super. That's refreshing. what I, yeah, that's what I really like about this movie is that it's hyper aware of the burden that it carries as the first all Asian, Asian American led cast in 25 years. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't care to, well, I don't say it cares. It doesn't, it doesn't feel the need to uh, represent everyone because it knows that it can't be everything for everyone. And I really admire that because it does so well um, at what it, it it strives to do. And um, yeah, I I think that the fact that we have an all Asian cast allows us to uh, feature this whole spectrum of Asian, of what usually would be Asian stereotypes. But here they're just, in a sea of people who are fully fleshed out characters and by virtue of being like what used to be stereotypes uh, in a movie where they are the centerpiece, they get to actually become characters. Agreed completely. There's much more to talk about. Why don't we dive into spoilers for Crazy Rich Asians starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Do you want to see this coming? 
No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. The first thing I thought of when I left this theater and considered how we're going to talk about this movie on the podcast is... Um, I re- I remembered way back in the day our review of Solo: A Star Wars Story. <laughs> way back feels, in the day, feels like forever ago. ago. Feels like forever yeah. ago. Uh, did you, uh, HT? Did you see Solo: A Star Wars Story? I did. I yeah. thought it was just fine. Yeah, I, it was okay. Was a it's yeah. a, a movie that is probably going to make less money worldwide than the Meg, but um, <laughs> oh, uh, that's true. It didn't do well at all. Yeah, it did, it did pretty badly. Um, but I remember Jeff Kanata complaining about the Sabak game in um, <laughs> in, in Solo: Star Wars Story, and you're, the whole point you're making is you have not even the you movie have not even explained the rules of Sabak. Um, so how do you expect us to have any investment in what the hell is going on here? Right? Ah, ah, I see where you're headed with this. Uh, yes. So this movie, Crazy Rich Asians, culminates in this huge climactic mahjong scene. A game of sabak. <laughs> it's, it's white people's sabak. It's like sabak <laughs> to white people. Right. Um, so you probably didn't understand what was going on there, but did the scene still work for you? It is – not only the best scene of this movie, it is one of the great scenes in cinema. Wow. I think. I think it, it it is a That's much better than I thought I was going to get from you, Jeff. <laughs> it is a beautiful, exquisitely uh, 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 um, realized moment. It is uh, I loved it. It made me cry. It is a spectacular moment. Uh, that, that's crazy. And the reason Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. The distinction between this and the Sabak moment <laughs> is that that the, the, the mahjong, the playing of mahjong, is ancillary to what's really going on, and we understand enough about the playing of mahjong. We understand enough about the stakes of the moment. We understand enough about the reveal of who has won and who has not. Even even the fact that I have no idea what any of that meant or what the consideration of a specific tile that lingers in the film it, it means I, I, the film communicates the stakes without hitting me over the head with them. But what's more important is what is actually happening is more important than the game. The game is a foundation upon which the actual confrontation is happening which is not the case in solo mm. at all mm. although solo, it seems like there there is a deeper meaning to the game too yes. like i've just been reading a couple explainers too so it works on both levels that's the thing like it, it you can absorb what the scene is trying to tell you just from you know the dialogue and what uh is being said but there's also that extra layer of just like flourish in yeah. meaning that's hidden in there so let, let, let's talk the, the, we, scene, the scene in solo is about a guy who does well at a game <laughs> yeah and the scene in crazy rich asians is about a culmination of all these emotions and you know mm-hmm. being who you are in the face of uh you know a, a cultural and specific personal dispute it, it is uh it's about so much more than the game and the game is is you know it, it it helps lift that moment, but it it doesn't rely on the game in any way. Yeah, I, I agreed completely. But let's just talk briefly about like what is actually happening there. 
Um, so one thing I love about this scene is uh, there's a very tactile feel. Like uh, there's a tactility to playing Mahjong and the sound and the movement. It's almost like a ballet of hands, you know. And I think the movie captures that really well with uh, the editing and the shots that it chooses. Uh, but essentially what's happening there, Jeff, is uh, Rachel Chu has won the game. Like she she can win, right? Like if she chooses to. So she tosses uh, a tile out into the middle uh, that basically will allow Michelle Yeoh to win. And um, Michelle Yeoh then takes it, like technically it's not her turn, but she's allowed to take that tile if it is if it is her turn to win. And you see Michelle Yeoh like swat, you know, aside the hand of another person next to her. And uh, she takes Rachel's tile and then wins the game. But then at that point, Rachel turns over her tiles and uh, that's not a customary thing to do in mahjong. Um, you don't like. You don't want. It's like showing your hand in poker. Like you don't do it because you don't want to give away your strategic thinking. Which, um, by the way, is exactly what she does at the beginning of the movie in actual poker. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Which um, at the time I was like, no one does that. That's dumb. But. <laughs> um, but yeah, she turns over her tiles, and you realize like, oh, she, dude, she could have won the entire time. She had the whole. She had the whole game in her hand the entire time. Um, but uh, she kind of willingly gave it up to uh, to Michelle Yeoh as kind of a, a sign of you know what, whatever she was trying to convey. Like that's what she did through the game, which is so. exactly what she did, of course, yeah. with with Nick. Nick. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, uh, I'm going to just say something. Spoilers for Coco, the Pixar original film. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting to me, spoilers for Coco coming up, uh, that we have like Coco, which is like widely celebrated as like uh, kind of, uh, you know, illuminating this uh, this Mexican culture. And then Crazy Rich Asians, which is widely celebrated for uh, illuminating Asian culture. And both films uh, like culminate in a character needing to choose between what they love or uh you know their their culture right like what they love or their family uh and in both films uh they get both things you know um and sadly i think in reality like that that actually doesn't happen as much as it does in the movies i think like often like people do have to choose and you see that with um michelle yo's character and and talking about like like it's clear that that character and uh her mother-in-law do not get along still you know um mm-hmm. and uh like Rachel says like well she came around and then like Michelle Yeoh is just like deathly silent. Um <laughs> I, that is extremely true to life to me uh where often yeah like matriarchs are disapproving of who their children marry and that those rifts often last for generations. Um yeah, so and we see it last with uh Michelle Yeoh's uh relationship with her mother-in-law as well it's a cyclical relationship which i thought was really interesting and really deepened her character yeah and it's also it's it's like like she has already been through it michelle yo's character has already been through it but she's still doing the exact same thing um but that again completely true to life in my opinion like that stuff happens Mm -hmm. with extreme regularity in uh, asian communities at least the ones that i've uh, I've been privy to in my life. So I think the, I, one of the best moments of this movie for me, by the way, was the mother-in-law death stare between <laughs> like Rachel's mom and Nick's mom. Like, Oh man, that is, you know what that family oh, yeah. Thanksgiving is going to be like. That was so awesome. That moment. Yeah. Uh, like apparently, really apparently that was improvised too. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. I, one of the things I admire most about this movie is that we don't ever get the scene 
between uh, Michelle Yeoh and Constance Wu. Like, there's no, there's no big emotional moment where it's like, I do accept you into the family and I <laughs> hug you. And, you know, like yeah. a, a, a lesser romantic comedy would indulge in that and, and have that moment of catharsis for the audience where, you know, we get the ring, we get the thing. And then at the end, as the credits are about to roll, the whole family is together and there's a, a an exchanged few sentences and a hug. And we see this movie is, the the gesture of the ring communicates everything, and I found it to be very powerful. Yeah, by the way. It, it, like uh, you just know what the whole backstory that went into that was. Like you don't even yeah. need to. No one needs to explain to you how that ring got to be in that case. You know, and it's and it, it is it, it hits it hit me like a ton of bricks seeing it uh, come out of that you know open, opening that case and seeing that ring in there. Like it says everything, and the movie mm-hmm. is confident enough not to reiterate it, not to say. Oh, this is. We're worried you didn't get it, and we're worried. You know, there's no moment where uh, you know Michelle Yeoh has to explicitly say anything. It, it, I love that about the movie. It, there, there's it, like a slight nod towards like when right. that is happening, and I think that's all you need because yeah. I think yeah, that's all the approval you'll get from an Asian parent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, What's so- really interesting to me is that um, as much as I really love rom-coms and I love the happy rom-com ending that we get, I think it's almost tertiary to that mm-hmm. Mahjong scene. Like that movie could have ended with the Mahjong scene and it still would have been just as emotional and empowering because that scene is the culmination of uh, Constance Wu's character, Rachel, kind of coming to terms with her own identity uh, and like proving that she is worthy as an Asian American and and like in the face of this, this woman who thinks that she's beneath her. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really love that this is, this is a scene that did not take place in the books and it was so powerful and was such a central part of this movie. It just kind of re, re, re centers this whole movie from being a rom-com into being one about just Rachel's character and a bit about being this kind of self-actualization. Yeah, yeah on some yeah. level, I almost wish the movie had like done the sad ending. You know, like I I, I love the ending; it's very moving, uh, very happy. But I was just wondering, like, oh man, like that would be su- such a bold move if this movie had gone like, and she had just went home without Nick, and like that was the ending. You know, and it was just purely about. Um, her actualization but you know it turns out in movies you can have it all um, well, I, I agree with you guys 100 percent uh if it wasn't for that that ring reveal yeah that ring reveal is pretty that was so such a master ring reveal is great i just thought that yeah mm-hmm. it's a beautiful it's a master stroke i think it's and it's such shorthand and it accomplishes so much with so little i i just I, when he starts like getting on the plane and we're getting that goofy rom-com yeah, moment of yeah. like going down either aisle i was like ah oh, movie you're better than this but then it completely redeemed itself with the ring reveal i just thought that mm. was so good the funny thing uh, to uh, me is too that is that nick is totally just like peripheral to this whole story <laughs> like he doesn't matter yes. he's just like a really beautiful ken doll like it's not about them finding their love for each other they clearly like each other and they liked each other at the beginning of the movie uh this is a movie about winning the mother-in-law like mm. that's what it is right. 
It's winning yeah. over the mother-in-law. It's a very specific thing. Men uh, are extremely especially. peripheral to this entire story. Um, Nick has basically no characteristics, as far as I understand, <laughs> um, other than that he's attractive and he loves Rachel. You know, that's basically. <laughs> but like that's his all. father, all like his father, like is nowhere in the. He's like written out yeah. the entire film. He doesn't um, even show up for the wedding. He's like, yeah, yeah but you really, you really get a sense that it's like a <laughs> matriarchal society, and I think that uh, again feels. Um, true to uh, a lot of Asian cultures is that, that like yeah. it, it is the mothers and the aunties who are mm-hmm. running everything. Um, I, w- I was half expecting uh, Chai Yun Fat to like just walk on the street and I <laughs> oh, would have screamed. True, dude. I was yeah. like the only the only actor that it could possibly be yes. is Chai Yun Fat. Yeah. yeah. Um, but th- I want to see two things. The first is that um, uh, I I don't necessarily think it's about winning over the mother in law. I think that it's proving to her that she can defeat her mm. like it is it is a power play at the oh, yeah. end and, and that, she that's what winning defeat. over means yeah yes. yeah that's what we mean by but, winning over is like pure force <laughs> jeff yeah okay well i mean usually winning over is like getting someone on your side it's not getting her on her side it is more it's uh yeah. you know she said i'm allowing this i'm allowing you to keep your son and every time you look at him and every time you feel <laughs> happiness know that i allowed it mm. like that's so pimp dude yeah that is such a, it's really badass yeah i love it's, it it's incredible it's like she's going I, I i have all the power here and i have decided and you need to know that for the rest <laughs> of your life i am the reason that you're happy it's like it's so pimp. it so is i want to say and then the second thing is I guess talking about uh, Ken dolls, I had the unique experience uh, of this movie seeing it on opening day, thanks to a, uh, a monthly service that I won't mention. Um, but I, I saw it on opening night uh, by myself uh, because I have two children and I go to movies by myself now. So single seat, packed theater. I'm I'm was happy to note, uh, and I happened to be sitting next to two. Must have been 13 or 14 year old girls uh, together. Um, And they, (laughs) the experience of watching this movie and being aware of them watching this movie was an experience all to itself because they just couldn't handle every time a shirt came off from a, of a boy in this movie. It was, they, they were squirming in their seats and snickering with each other. And they, there were gasps at, at, at certain things and, uh, things that a, a woman would do to another woman. They were just, it was a roller coaster ride of 13 year old girl hormones, uh, to the left of me. And, uh, I found that to be a, uh, a sort of added benefit of my viewing experience. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, uh, because this is one of the few movies that makes Asian men sexy, which mm. is something that very few movies do, and uh, we don't need to dwell on it too much, except to say that that's awesome. Um, yeah, these were two. These, these were not Asian little girls either. Yeah. These were, you know, they were they were loving it. Man. I, I yeah. would actually say it took things a little too far. Um, in my opinion, like, a, little, a little. We're a little. introduced yeah. to Astrid's husband as a torso. Um, yeah. I was going to say that too. In a shower, the weakest <laughs> character in the movie is just a torso. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, like, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, HT. I was going to say, like, it. 
it's better that we meet him torso first because as soon as he opens his mouth, it's just downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, Devendra, you were talking about a subplot. I mean, I, in my opinion, you know, again, love this movie. So grateful that it has advanced, you know, depictions of Asians on screen greatly in our in American society. But in my opinion, the Astrid subplot was kind of a disaster. I mean, it, I, it was a disaster. I want to shout, "You're ruining the movie!" Every time you're on, stop it. This movie is so good. You don't need to be here. I know it's from the book. I, yeah. I've been told that by a lot of folks, and they're setting up a sequel, of course, um, because that's the world we live in now. Uh, I, I guess like the follow-up books uh, follow Astrid's character, um, but yeah, it's so it just doesn't fit in anywhere. It's just so it, it, yeah, it doesn't know. it doesn't work. I think just because you don't have enough of those characters, like you don't mm-hmm. know enough about them to understand. Like you don't. You, it, I, I felt very little in terms of. Yeah. You know, I was very little invested in their marriage to then he could be have been interesting. Yeah. The thing. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. he's he is like the one other outsider there alongside Rachel. And they right. just didn't do much with it. And then we go, we jump straight into to the affair, you know, yeah. having an affair. And it's yeah. just not there's not enough there. I feel like they could have tweaked that storyline to make it parallel Rachel's more and mm-hmm. make it more powerful and intertwined with that story. But it just, it was, yeah, we get so little of it. And we already kind of get uh, Eleanor, Michelle Yeoh's character, like, kind of having that parallel too so it doesn't work because it just feels extraneous to have Astrid and this is someone who liked Astrid a lot in the book I thought that the subplot in the movie was just unnecessary I mean she is like so over the top amazing in the movie too you know she's she's perfect she's She's gorgeous like super considerate like humble you know um, uh, she puts on jewelry sadly and like, oh poor girl <laughs> yeah that yeah. was a little bit of kind of what i was talking yeah, about yeah like the wealth yeah, yeah, thing yeah. is like you deserve to wear those 1.2 million dollar <laughs> earrings yeah you know it's like, like that that being the act like the actualization of astrid d- did feel pretty like, i don't know yeah. weird icky yeah. almost um yeah so that, uh, uh, like, you know, it was it was a low point in an otherwise very enjoyable rom-com. Um, any other thoughts as we wrap up? HT, you want to you want to give us a final word here? I do want to. Well, it's a little bit more of a kind of thread, but uh, I really like that um, Michelle Yeoh's character, Eleanor, was really fleshed out from the kind of evil stepmother that we're really used to. Uh, I got a lot of um threat like shades of korean dramas if you guys are familiar with any of them <laughs> uh specifically a drama called boys over flowers in which we have a very similar story of a young scrappy lower class girl who gets mm-hmm. thrust into a wealthy uh elite um kind of world and is targeted by the evil stepmother and in the book uh eleanor is actually much more along the lines of that kind of shallow evil antagonist but michelle yo make made a concerted effort to give her character a much more depth and much more like sympathy uh we see again with her her relationship with her mother-in-law that it's very strained and she is kind of dealing with the same struggles that rachel is getting from her and um there's a really interesting quote from michelle Yu, who said that when she signed on to do the film with john chu she didn't want to be a mustache twirling um uh, villain. She wanted to kind of give the perspective of uh, the beautiful men that she's met in Asia who take a second seat because that's how you 
manage your husband's position in society. And she thinks that um, it's very universal to be self-sacrificing for not just for Chinese women, but for everyone, first to your husband and then to your children. And we see that whole arc with her. And I really love that. And just like, I would die for Michelle Yeoh. I forgot to say that earlier. Uh, she is just phenomenal yeah. in this film. I I love every facial expression. It's just so nuanced, especially in the Mahjong scene. We see such as a so much turmoil going on in her face, and I absolutely love what she did with this role. And it wasn't just a classic evil stepmother-in-law. She is awesome mm-hmm. in this movie, and she's even more awesome if you've seen this movie after you've watched her performance in movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and <laughs> Super Cop, uh, because you know that this woman can totally dominate anyone else in the film, you know, physically. Yeah. Like, she can kick ass. Uh, even Tomorrow Never Dies, you know? Uh, like, it's it, she's just such a... She doesn't use any of those skills in this movie. No. You know, she she's just, still kicking ass, by the way, even in uh, Star Trek Discovery, which nobody apparently has seen, but it, she still does it. She's still capable. It's great. Yeah, and it's, it's just amazing that, like... She has that aura. Yeah. It's trapped on CBS's app is the only reason I haven't watched yeah. it. Yeah. She, you, she's this character that's like, okay, she she could literally physically destroy anyone else in the film, but she, you, you just feel all this power that she's just restraining the entire time. It's pure power. Um, it's That's amazing. It it's amazing. Um, I, I will say uh, one last thing about this movie, uh, which is the soundtrack I thought was really enjoyable. A mm-hmm. lot of uh, Asian classics and uh, covers, Chinese covers. I think of, more covers than classics, honestly, yeah, right? Um, Chinese covers of uh, classic uh, American songs, mm-hmm. but um, if, if like Coldplay's "Yellow" is well, classic to you, but I feel like the inclusion of just that song there is such a, it is such a fuck you to that slur. Well, it's let's 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 talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You know, uh, John Chu. Like people may not know that when you want to license music for your movies, um, you need to pay money. But it's not just like you can pay money and automatically you get it. You actually need to get permission from the people who uh, wrote and performed that music. And John Chu wrote a letter to um, Coldplay uh, requesting permission. Uh, and uh, HT, I believe you blogged about this at SlashFilm.com. Um, I'm going to read from the letter uh, that John Chu wrote, uh, which was published first at The Hollywood Reporter. He wrote, quote, I know it's a bit strange, but my whole life I've had a, a complicated relationship with the color yellow. From being called the word in a derogatory way throughout grade school to watching movies where they called cowardly people yellow – It's always had a negative connotation in my life. That is, until I heard your song. For the first time in my life, it described the color in the most beautiful, magical ways I had ever heard. The color of the stars, her skin, the love. It was an incredible image of attraction and aspiration that made me rethink my own self-image. And I'm going to skip forward a little bit here. When John Chu's talking about the movie and how the last scene of this movie shows this realization uh, that Rachel can be proud of her mixed heritage as she heads to the airport to return home a different woman. It's an empowering emotional march and needs an anthem that lives up uh, and beyond her inner triumph, which is where Yellow comes in. It would be mm-hmm. such an honor to use your song that gave me so much strength throughout the years to underscore this final part of our film. And for me personally, it would complete a journey that I've been going through fighting to make it in the movie business, end quote. So – uh, a very, very powerful letter that John Chu wrote um, to Coldplay. And obviously, they allowed the song to be used in the climactic moment of the film. Uh, and I think it's really well used. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it, that also like, speaks to, like, yeah, everything this movie does, right? It is not just, oh, we want a fun song for, for the end of this movie. No, it is 
like it's a very specific song that has a very specific meaning and like i think for yeah for much of the audience too that means something yeah right, that's that's smart like agreed. i wish more movies had this amount of like thought put into them agreed if uh coldplay had said no they could have always gone with yellow submarine i guess mm-hmm. no i don't think so yeah probably wouldn't have worked i don't know if well. they would have the same impact yeah <laughs> All right. Well, that's our review, Crazy Rich Asians. Um, and uh, HC, thanks so much for joining us today for it. Thanks um, for having me. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week and also to hear our discussion of HBO's succession. In the meantime, HT, where can people have more of your work on the internet this week? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com. I actually have two more Crazy Rich Asians pieces coming up, including a spoiler review. And you can find me on Twitter at htranbui. Uh How about you, Jeff Kanata? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I also do a show about video games called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Devendra? I'm at Devendra on Twitter, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. Uh, and I am off Twitter. <laughs> I've temporarily quit. Um, but you can find me at davechen.net slash letters, where you can sign up to receive regular updates from me. It's kind of uh, like my own personal version of Twitter, except much, much slower uh, to get to you uh, and fewer times per week. Next week, we'll be discussing the Happy Time Murders on the Slash Filmcast, so stay tuned for that. And uh, stick around for our discussion of HBO's Succession. What you just heard was the opening theme song of Succession, which is an awesome piece of music. Yes. Uh, and it's so badass. you got to listen to it while you're uh, uh, driving Haunting. down the highway or anything. Yeah. Effective. Yeah. Um, uh, super cool. And so, uh, yeah, like I-, I think we were all just compelled to talk about the show because there was something about it that made us plow through the entire series in such a short period of time. Uh, Devendra, you're the one that really kind of advocated yeah. for the show to us. Like what, what, what do you, and we should say we are going to spoil the whole thing. Um, so uh, we, the, the show is already over and it has been renewed for season two. Um, yes. but we, we just have so much to talk about. So we're going to spoil right up front. Uh, but Devendra, what was it uh, that really drew you to this show? I, I think the show is just like pretty much the perfect sort of black comedy for the time we're living in right now. Like I'll, I'll tell you guys, I've, I've already rewatched it once because my wife, my wife wanted to catch up and I saw it for the first time in three days when I had screwed up my back and was just kind of stuck and just need to watch stuff. Uh, but even with my wife who had seen some of it with me, we ended up rewatching all of it in four days as well. Like this show I feel is just so perfectly written. It is one of the most quotable things uh, I can think of recently, and you could definitely feel like Jesse Armstrong's experience with the sort of like uh, flourish swears uh, from like the thick of it and everything and peep show. 
Like, there's just so much going on. It's so creative. These characters, I think, are so compelling. They're all terrible people. But the show isn't, like, unlike Crazy Rich Asians, I don't think it's in any way glorifying their money. It's more like, this is a curse. They can never be happy. They can never live full lives because they've grown up in this crazy bubble. And the entire show is about Brian Cox is trying to deal with the fact that he's raised these, like, feckless children who are incapable of functioning in society. Uh, Endlessly entertaining, basically. Jeff Kanata, what made you plow through this whole thing? Um, this show is so delicious. It <laughs> is just wonderful. I mean, it's King Lear if mm-hmm. King Lear never learned any lessons. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, man. It is exquisitely, exquisitely cast, superbly acted. Um, there are incredible moments just diabolical backstabbings and betrayals and I mean whole episodes that could be just a movie in and of themselves where you get these sort of like almost like bottle episodes you know uh the the entire uh bachelor episode bachelor party episode is incredible um there is a there is an episode about where a major character gets stuck in traffic yeah. That is hard for me to experience because <laughs> of how excruciating the exp- – I've been in that situation where you, the, you're just trapped. <laughs> you're trapped in traffic. You need to be in a different place. Everything is conspiring against you to get to that place. You can't get there. Your cell phone doesn't work. You're, it is like – it makes my heart beat just thinking about it. Watching it, I was breathless because it, it it's so <laughs> – well executed to kind of create this sense of tension and yeah. and exasperation and uh, horror. It's a perfect comedy of errors too for like for Kendall who can't do anything right. Yes, that is the entire show. Like he is the guy. He is this like trying to be uh, you know the spitting image of his father, but he just keeps failing because he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that extra you know uh, chutzpah or something like he just doesn't have it he's not and seeing yeah. him try and fail is kind of entertaining in a way he wants to be his dad so bad and he just doesn't have the gene of asshole he just yeah. doesn't have it and he fakes it and the, the acting is so great to express that like i'm trying really hard to be the ass there's a, so many in the early like first two episodes there's these phone calls where he's like i'm going to be the asshole and it just <laughs> fails miserably yeah I, I, so uh, here, here's what i love about this show uh s- several things but i think number 1 is the casting is so ridiculously good um so good it's it's so, like it's it's ridiculous. like um alan ruck right playing uh yeah. uh connor roy yeah. eminently punchable you just hate that character that um, rich guy who doesn't know how to do anything. Rich guy doesn't know how to do is, anything. Um, I think this is a show about Tom, you guys. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. have become the biggest fan of Matthew McFadden. Wamscans all the way, baby. That guy <laughs> is uh, just on the basis of this show alone has become like top three actor. I will watch anything uh-huh. he's in from now on. I think he, his work in this show is some of the best acting I have ever seen. It's incredible. The character incredible. of Tom yeah. is perfect perfect like, I, I i would for me actually mvp of this show is um is the character who plays kendall roy Jer- jeremy strong yeah i feel like that ca- that character is so like within five minutes of meeting that character you know everything you need to know about that character right mm-hmm. it, which is that uh he he's not dumb 
right? Like he didn't get to where he is uh, by luck. He has some skills, but he desperately wants to please his father, and he just doesn't have what it takes to be number one. Yeah. Uh, and you get you get all that just by like looking at him and by seeing him, uh, you know, psych himself up for meetings and like talking, you know, street slang. It, it just it's it's <laughs> painful to witness. Um, but you, you, it's just like the casting is so good. Uh, it's mm-hmm. really impressive. Okay. So, I, I, th- I think the thing you could say about the show, by the way, is that every character I think is kind of fascinating in their yeah, own way. Like, yeah, like for me, Tom is ah. kind of the one mainly because I've seen Matthew McFadden in so many things. Like he is the guy who gets cast as like the romantic lead in like, you know, British historical dramas. Right. I just, I just saw him in, uh, in Howard's end just yeah. playing like a nice, you know, handsome rich guy. And in this show, he is the one everybody decides to shit on, uh, but also he is the one that is trying to be ruthless and also can't quite do it like he has a certain heart. But then when he is ruthless, it is hilarious. Just like him, like finding the next, uh, you know, the next lower person on the pecking order. So it's Cousin Greg. Right. And just seeing his relationship <laughs> with Cousin Greg is amazing. Like he and then he finds is... the one person he can have a little power over yeah, mm. yeah. and revels in it. And yeah, he. he the the episode where he tries to teach Greg how to be rich, yeah, like it's so great because it's like this nouveau riche uh, impression of what it's like. He's yeah. he's gotten himself into this position that he's always wanted to be in, and now he's got some other kid who he can he can like be excited about that. Yeah. Like, look, we're drinking gold and we're he's doing we're, we're drinking um, our own ejaculate. You know, um, <laughs> that dude. <laughs> That line, that, that all of that, that monologue where or that dialogue where he <laughs> he tries to talk to himself, himself into thinking it was a good idea, right? Yes, he's trying to convince himself it was super hot, you know. Like <laughs> it is so good, it is so <laughs> good. And yeah, I, like every like everything that character does in the show, I kept turning to my wife the entire time we were watching. I'm going, I love this. I love Tom. I love Tom. He's so. He's so terrible at everything yeah. and like the the moment where he he tries to confront his his wife to be about things and he's like he's so genuine and yet so shit upon and a uh, dude he's perfect he's yeah. a perfect he's perfect character. he actually loves his wife who doesn't really like I don't think Shiv understands that like emotion and the meaning of love like all these everybody in the Roy family is a sociopath on a certain right. level right yes. and I, the 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 key to Tom is that he he actually loves her like despite right. all of this bullshit yep. and his like his trying really to be better run away from the money and be right, with her right yeah he would want to do that my favorite when there's so many great scenes in the show but one of my favorites cuz I just I am standing Tom all the way is uh, after shiv like in the finale after shiv like explains everything and they kind of reconcile in a way in like a really adult way that i found so rare especially in a show like this like he doesn't just stomp off like a baby like he right. they, they kind of he he's trying to make it work and you feel for him they play uptown girl and yeah. he is running down the stairs yeah. with an umbrella like mary fucking poppins to kick this guy out of his wedding and that is such such an amazing scene like him finally getting to wield a certain amount of power him forcing that like slimy guy like i hate i, I think i just hate that character because of yeah. like the way that actor is kind of portraying it um but like him forcing the guy to put the wine back just like that that one then, final fuck you so and perfect. then he gets to he gets to share that look with greg 
Like yep. it's like this beautiful thing where he and Greg both know what just happened, and it's so <laughs> fucking rad because he tried to deny it to Greg earlier when they meets him when he's running. Uh, dude, that character is so perfect. But I also love about the, the moment before that with the the reconciliation with with uh, Shiv is they could legitimately both come out of that moment thinking opposite things about what happened. Right. Mm. right. Like she's going to think that he decided it's okay for them to be together and her to be a shit. And he can think, oh, she's really genuinely sorry and is never going to do it again. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. It's so uh, good. I, fa- I found so it. Good. Yeah, I found that like quote unquote reconciliation and him kicking uh, the other dude out of the wedding to be like um, kind of tragic in a way. You know that yeah. that like that's, totally that's is. that is the small amount of power. he can kick him out of the wedding, but it's not going to make this intractable problem go away. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going to make this issue of them and, and like when. Uh, Brian Cox's character Logan is like, "You're marrying this dude that's fathoms beneath you." You Ooh. know, she's like, no. and he just sits there and takes yeah, it. He just sits there and takes it. it, and she doesn't disagree with him. You know, she, right. Shiv is not like, oh, "No, you're wrong." Yeah. She's just like, "Well, that's true." You know, yeah. um, it's but, it's brutal. That that one scene, like just playing Uptown Girl. He is the downtown guy. Yeah, <laughs> he, he is the guy yep. fighting for the Uptown Girl. Like it's oh man the show mm. so, so uh, one of the other things i love about this movie is uh you know I, I read this piece actually that captured it really well by jason concepcion over at the ringer it's entitled greed is not good the anti-capitalist message of succession and he's talking about how like when you watch um uh movies like wall street or uh the wolf of wall street yeah. you know that that theoretically these movies are indictments of capitalist greed. Like they are like, oh, like I'm I, Martin Scorsese, you know, am exposing how terrible and profligate these people are. And like, you know, although their lives seem cool on the surface, like really it's they're horrible. Um but the problem is, like, you would totally trade places with Leonardo DiCaprio if you had the chance. You know, like, right. it still makes that lifestyle extremely intoxicating. Uh, that is not the case with Succession. You do not want to be these characters. Um, yeah, they're <laughs> severely damaged in ways that they only hint at, like being locked in a fucking cage yeah. as a child to find out who's the more dominant, you know, child. Like, yeah. Oh. But he, but he liked it too. He wanted it. What? Yeah. There what, is a what special. What, what I like about the show is it captures the special hell that the ultra rich face, which is mm-hmm. that uh, when someone is talking to you, you never know if they're playing an angle. Like you never know if they want something from you, and that happens with every single interaction in this in this uh, series. Is are, are they trying to get something out of you? Are they trying to extract something out of you? If you are ultra rich and everyone knows it, then you never know where people are really truly coming from. Uh, yeah. and, and that suspicion and paranoia pervades everything. Um, so a, a couple of other things I want to flag just yeah. because I fucking love this show so much. You already talked about Alan Ruck and how great he is, but there is no better illustration of privilege than him deciding he's going to be president yep you know like it is yep. so beautifully illustrated that he gets into a what he considers to be an a debate <laughs> with with uh um uh, eric bogosian and it, it isn't right in his warped perception like he just owned a guy in a debate whereas he just said some nonsense <laughs> just for owned a lib yeah yeah and and then he just decides like i can do this job i can do this job it's it's so 
perfectly illustrates that that thing of just like, oh, I'm I'm the kind of guy that can do this, so I just will. It's yeah. uh, dude, I love and him that. talking about it with the girlfriend, like just her reaction to it, like yes, oh man, and I you love can tell, her, dude. There's mm-hmm. a there's a scene. I can't remember which episode it is, but it's the one. It's the scene where she decides she's going to move in with him, and he sort of dangles these things, and and they play this game. And you watch in her face the moment that she completely compromises everything that she believes in. Mm-hmm. Like she just she. I mean, obviously, she's already compromised herself in a lot of ways based on what she does for a living. But there's a moment where. She does not like this person. She does not want to live with him. Cannot she does stand not want him. him. Doesn't want to. She does yeah. not want him to think that they will ever have a relationship with each other that's real. And yet, there's a moment where she just makes the decision, and it's like this subtle shift. It's this like slippery slope moment of like, oh, from now on, she there's no turning back from this. She is now gone over the edge because she wants the money that will make her quote unquote dreams come true. It's like, it's so fucking perfect. And and there's so many, it's just a small, tiny little thing in a big, big show. Yeah. But there's like countless moments like that in the show. Agreed. Agreed. Um, all right, all right guys, why don't we talk through some of our favorite, favorite moments from the show and, and like name, name some episodes if we can. Um, but first I want to give a shout out to Nicholas Brittell, who's the composer. I think it's actually a crime that the score for this show is not available publicly anywhere. Like I can't seem to find it. Um, and I, I would buy the CD, but I think the score is beautiful and great and, um, has a lot of swagger, but also a lot of tragedy to it. I mean, for me, like the, the two sort of defining moments of this entire show are season one, episode six, which is which side are you on? Jeff, you already yep. talked about it really well about like like him running through traffic and trying to like eject his father from the company. Uh, yeah. So painful to watch. Um, so tragic. And then um, the season finale uh, with <laughs> Kendall pulling a Chappaquiddick and <laughs> killing a dude uh, or, or, or like taking actions that led to someone's death. And mm-hmm. um, the... Con- the, the conversation that he has with his father afterwards and like Logan Roy played by Brian Cox, he, he like the balance of power has shifted 100% yeah. into yeah. Logan Roy's court at that and point. He yeah. knows exactly how to use that he knows exactly information. How to use it. And uh, he plays it brilliantly. Like he, he is, he has completely recovered his faculties at that point. Yeah. And, um, and the, the way in which lower class life is so callously dismissed. Yeah, right? yeah, is chilling, right? Just like mm-hmm. oh, this could be the story of like you killing a boy, but instead it's like um, it, it could also be like when uh, uh, a a wedding where like something slightly unfortunate happened, you know, and like yeah. just bargaining with these lives, um, it's it, crazy in a way that yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I I'm, I'm not gonna ruin a party over a couple of fucking thumbs. Right, <laughs> dude, dude, that's that's the, the scene that, when oh, Roman man. like looks at the spaceship exploding. <laughs> yep. It's like completely in silence, reaction. right? No yeah. sound. It's so great, amazing. He just comes back to the party, he's just like, he's just, okay. <laughs> just get, yeah, goes right back to the party. Like, doesn't even talk about it. Um, uh, that, that is like the one thing I feel like if that were to happen, at least somebody else in the uh, at the party, aside from the uh, the council, would be like, "Hey, did that thing just blow up? Like, why? What's going on with that? What's yeah. hey? Yeah, I I love how 
the the show never comes out and says this, but every time Greg knows anything, uh-huh. everyone knows it. <laughs> Anytime Greg has a piece of information, every single person has that information. Like I heard you, I heard you ate your own jizz. You know, like, <laughs> but it's over and over and over. If if Greg knows something, it is it is known to everyone, and it never like comes out and says that Greg is the reason that pe- people know this. Yeah, but yeah. dude, it's so. He, that's yeah. his one talent. Like I actually started out hating Greg. Like Greg to me is one of those like, uh, what's it? You know how much I hate that guy from The Wire season two, Dave. Uh, Presbelewski. Was, was it Ziggy? Uh, yeah, yeah you know, Ziggy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ziggy. He's kind of like failing, you know, failing upwards in the family. Yeah, right? the sort yeah. of like failing, you know, model of a guy who's just like kind of a useless person. I think Greg definitely starts out that way and he slowly molds himself into somebody who at least his one talent is that he kind of he's just kind of everywhere and nobody notices him. So he kind of just will hear things and notice things and slowly use that to his power. Like the one moment when he leverages that in the finale uh, with Kendall and Kendall's like, oh, Greg, Greg, the egg, you Machiavellian fuck. Yeah, I, I, yeah, got, yeah, yeah. I see. It, it, he becomes a Roy. The he family has Roy. corrupted even Greg, who is so hapless that yeah. you would not think he would be corruptible. Um, he becomes in that moment. He becomes a Roy. It's like, yeah. oh, you are one of us. You know. I did think it was yeah. weird that he like shredded a copy and then copy and made a copy of. Like, why not just take the he original? Was also very high at the time. Like that was right <laughs> after they all got high. So he was like, who, who knows? Like what his like mental state was, but he had the wherewithal to be like, yeah, one one for later. One for one for the shredder or something, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's I, weird. I am convinced that we are going to find out that Marsha is the most Machiavellian of all. Oh mm. man, mm. there's something there. There's a What's lot of like, there? there's a lot of little like uh, plot threads that the second season could pick up on. The, the origin of Marsha is one of them. Um, uh, Romans like seems to be like asexual or or something like that. You know, like I think he just yeah. didn't want to fuck her because. But he, it was it was multiple. There was multiple women though. Like oh, so, there's there's yeah. something about his sex life that's like not the show has not explicitly stated yet. He he's like so emasculated that he is performatively masculine, but right. can't really perform. Maybe like yeah. there, off a on a window. Out. Yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah. is some kind of like impotence or asexuality. Like uh, it's not clear. But like there. But I I like that you know the introduces these plot threads that it had like there's still room for the show to like explore these other. Uh, characters and the characters have been so well sketched out that like they really feel like uh, true characters. You know, they feel I just like, like they when have we get like lives. glimpses of things. Like there's a point where um, uh, Brian Cox's character uh, he is coming out of the pool in Austerlitz, and you look at his back, yeah, and his back is covered in scratches, yeah. and you're like, oh, Marsha did that. Oh, what is happening? Yeah, really? what I, is that I, like? I thought those were whip marks from his childhood. Mm. Okay. Mm, they look yeah. fresher, but they could be. Yeah, but well. it's just like the show just like drops little touches like that and like does not follow up on it. And you're like, huh, mm-hmm. it, like helps it to like feel like this is other this whole world that you're just uh, mm-hmm. getting a glimpse into. Uh, any other like f- like big favorite moments that you guys have? Uh, in, I think in it's more like I don't think anybody can yell as well as Brian Cox. <laughs> I think he is like the best yeller on to like you in cinema in theater like he he's just very good at it so yeah perfectly cast here um that final scene between him and kendall is just it goes so much to their characters i guess what i love about the show is that it gives you these great characters and then it really knows them it really knows what to do with them so in that moment you also see what kendall is 
and what you know what Kendall isn't and what Logan is and Logan is ultimately somebody who can take every single opportunity and use it to screw over his enemies mm. and Kendall's the guy who keeps like opening himself up to opportunities to be screwed basically like that's that's it he cannot apply those sorts of like that sort of ruthlessness and watching the series again like just going back to like the first couple scenes with the characters you see that immediately like Kendall trying to talk over that uh that media ceo and trying to be like the you know the cool tough guy and you just can't do it yeah yeah, yeah. and it, you know it's clearly of our time and pertinent to the to the world as it's as it's happening and unfolding in the news around us i mean it's we it, there are shades of of the inept trump sons and the uh you know the rupert murdoch family and the, all there are so many you know, uh, analogs that uh, it's a perfect time to watch this show. It's a, it's, it's a highly entertaining show. I'm so glad it's coming back for season two. It mm-hmm. was completely under my radar until Devendra talked about how great it was and how much he liked it. Yeah. Same. Uh, Devendra, so never so say bad. you don't have an impact on us. Like we both ah. heard you talk about it and we're like, all right, let's check it out. And then I know what I, you guys like, you know, yeah. I, I will say like after the second episode, I wasn't sure if I was going to be into mm-hmm. this show. Like, cause the second episode they're at the hospital and kind of negotiating like what to do. Um, but then after like episodes three and four, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm riding this all the way to the end. Oh, I need, yeah, to, I need to see this out. Um, any other favorite moments? I will say like a character that I really appreciated was like Jerry, the, uh, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she's great. She just like, uh, and, and then the moment when she betra- kind of betrays Kendall, but not really like she doesn't have a board seat, so she can't vote. But she's just basically like, I don't think I should be involved in, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what, but what everybody that scene is so great because everybody is waiting for somebody else. Yep. To do it, yeah. They've all had are they're all on the, on the plan, but the the fact that Brian Cox won't leave that Logan won't leave the room, and they're all now being being intimidated by this hundred pound gorilla in the room. Yeah, and it's a battle of Ro- personalities. Yeah, and then Roman completely withering. <laughs> You know, in in the face of that is so great, dude. Yeah. It's so great how he's like he literally votes against what he said he's gonna yeah. do. And Logan, <sighs> Logan, Logan is like, so you have something to say, Romulus? And uses yeah. his full name, and you know what right. that means. And by the way, what a what a fucking great full name! Like <laughs> you're trying to say, you know, you're trying to give impart some sort of like I don't know nobility to your son. Uh, you call him Romulus. I guess that's great. That after that scene, after that episode ended, by the way, like first of all ballsy to do something like that in the middle of the season my wife was (laughs) like man that was a crazy season wasn't it (laughs) and i was like baby we're just getting started like that is you've got a whole other half you've got and everything after that is pure gold then it's austerlitz then it's Prague, and then it's the whole wedding thing which brings matthew mcfadden back to uh to the uk uh which is kind of hilarious too it's like of course this rich family has ties to like basically people who own castles like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like coming full circle and then the uh, mom yeah. the mom is so great too how, how fucking just cold and vicious she is yeah. constantly uh there's so many awesome moments with her just like asking people how long she's gonna think it lasts the toast that she gives which is just brutal yeah. um oh man oh, we more- haven't mentioned james cromwell but when yeah, he he's great up, it's like jesus yes <laughs> of course <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. So many great moments. Uh, totally a show worth checking out. Might have flew under a bunch of people's radars this summer, but Succession, season one on HBO. Catch up on it before season two. Yeah? 
For sure. Um, yes, and yeah, Devendra, thanks for lighting a fire under our asses about it. Yeah. No problem. This is one of those shows. Like, I gave Billions a chance, and I know a lot of people like that show, and I just never quite clicked with it because I think it is precisely that sort of like uh, rich people glorification thing. But yeah, we'll see. I'm glad. I'm glad this worked out well. And I think you can really tell this is a show that's basically created and mostly written by British comedy writers. Like it is such a different perspective on this whole world that I think it's so refreshing. Can I ask one one last question before we wrap up? Yeah. Uh, I, I since powering through it, I've recommended it to a bunch of friends, and I uh, uh, one friend in particular bounced off of it because he's distracted and frustrated by Adam McKay's direction and how stylized and th- those you mm. know push ins, mm-hmm. those very very. Um, it's like uh, semi doc, like trying to be yeah. sort of like that or very tame. Very yeah. deliberate, you know, uh, camera moves that you can't ignore. Uh, how do you guys feel about how the show is directed? I had no issues with it whatsoever. And it's very like in the style of The Office. Yeah, uh, mm. but it was Except also shot. It. it was also yeah. shot on film, and the production values are really good. Uh, yeah. So I, I felt like it was a pretty. It was an interesting series of decisions that worked for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know a lot of people have complained about it, though. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I feel like we're so inured to that style of filmmaking as a culture yeah. now that it's just like, I don't know. It, it's weird to me that someone would be bothered by it, but I know a lot it's of people It's the style were. of the time. Yeah. And I have to say, I think it gets better. He only did the uh, the pilot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark Mylod, who did the finale, I think there's some, like, he kind of elevates the show to a certain level. Um, there, like, despite that technique, I think there are so many sequences where, like, the framing is perfect, right? Like, somebody's saying something and somebody's right behind them, like, snickering at how dumb it is or how, like, awkward this whole situation is. Like, I think everything, at least moving forward beyond the pilot, is framed really well. Uh, I wouldn't call it a particularly beautiful show, but there's a lot of stuff in it that works well for me. I also love the expression of wealth in it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about. Uh, crazy rich Asians in this sh- in this episode as well, and you know the the bachelor party in that show is like, look at the how crazy wealth what you can do. We can be in the barge in the middle of the thing and have like four hundred people. And, and this movie is or this show is like, what rich people are going to do is like go in this horrible hole in the <laughs> ground and try to find debauchery. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like it's it's a and even like where they live and how they live, it's not. You know, it's not, um, I don't know what a great example, but it, it, it doesn't feel like, look how showy our wealth is. It's, it's, it's people who are truly rich, who are like just living wealthy rather than trying right. to show everyone how wealthy they, they are. They don't need golden bathrooms. Right. You know, they just yeah. have a really nice penthouse that just happens to be like a fucking amazing duplex in this yeah. building, you know, something right. like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our review of HBO Succession. Uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next week. I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who?